Chapter twenty five of the Return of Dr. Fu Manchu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elaine Tweddle. The Return of Dr. Fu Manchu by Sax Romer. Chapter twenty five. The Bells. I started to my feet as a tall, bearded man swung open the door and hurled himself impetuously into the room. He wore a silk hat, which fitted him very ill, and a black frock coat, which did not fit him at all. "'It's all right, Petrie,' cried the apparition. "'I've leased the gables.' It was Nathan Smith. I stared at him in amazement. "'The first time I have employed a disguise,' continued my friend rapidly, "'since the memorable episode of the false pigtail.' He threw a small brown leather grip upon the floor. "'In case you should care to visit the house, Petrie, I have brought these things. My tenancy commences to-night.' Two days had elapsed, and I had entirely forgotten the strange story of the gables which Inspector Weymouth had related to us. Evidently it was otherwise with my friend, and utterly at a loss for an explanation of his singular behaviour, I stooped mechanically and opened the grip. It contained an odd assortment of garments, and among other things several grey wigs and a pair of gold-rimmed spectacles. Kneeling there with this strange litter about me, I looked up amazedly. Nayland Smith, with the unsuitable silk hat set right upon the back of his head, was pacing the room excitedly, his fuming pipe protruding from the tangle of factitious beard. "'You see, Petrie,' he began again, rapidly, "'I did not entirely trust the agent. I have leased the house in the name of Professor Maxton.' "'But, Smith,' I cried, "'what possible reason can there be for disguise?' "'There's every reason,' he snapped. "'Why should you interest yourself in the gables? Does no explanation occur to you?' "'None whatever. To me, the whole thing's Max of stark lunacy. Then you won't come?' "'I've never stuck at anything, Smith,' I replied, however undignified, when it has seemed that my presence could be of the slightest use. As I rose to my feet, Smith stepped in front of me, and the steely grey eyes shone out strangely from the altered face. He clapped his hands upon my shoulders. "'If I assure you that your presence is necessary to my safety,' he said, "'that if you fail me I must seek another companion,' "'Will you come?' Instinctively I knew that he was keeping something back, and I was conscious of some resentment, but nevertheless my reply was a foregone conclusion, and, with the borrowed appearance of an extremely untidy old man, I crept guiltily out of my house that evening and into the cab which Smith had waiting. The Gables was a roomy and rambling place, lying back a considerable distance from the road. A semicircular drive gave access to the door, and so densely wooded was the ground that, for the most part, the drive was practically a tunnel, a verdant tunnel. A high brick wall concealed the building from the point of view of anyone on the roadway, but either horn of the crescent drive terminated at a heavy wrought-iron gateway. Smith discharged the cab at the corner of the narrow and winding road upon which the gables fronted. It was walled in on both sides on the left the wall being broken by tradesmen's entrances to the houses fronting upon another street, and on the right following uninterruptedly the grounds of the gables. As we came to the gate, "'Nothing now,' said Smith, pointing into the darkness of the road before us, "'except a couple of studios until one comes to the heath.' He inserted the key in the lock of the gate and swung it creakingly open. I looked back into the black arch of the avenue, thought of the haunted residence that lay hidden somewhere beyond, of those who had died in it, especially of the one who had died there under the trees, and found myself out of love with the business of the night. 
come on said nayland smith briskly holding the gate open there should be a fire in the library and refreshments if the charwoman has followed instructions i heard the great gate clang to behind us even had there been any moon and there was none i doubted if more than a patch or two of light could have penetrated there the darkness was extraordinary nothing broke it and i think smith must have found his way by the aid of some sixth sense at any rate i saw nothing of the house until i stood some five paces from the steps leading up to the porch a light was burning in the hallway but dimly and inhospitably of the facade of the building i could perceive little when we entered the hall and the door was closed behind us i began wondering anew what purpose my friend hoped to serve by a vigil in this haunted place there was a light in the library, the door of which was ajar, and on a large table were decanters, a siphon, and some biscuits and sandwiches. A large grip stood upon the floor also. For some reason, which was a mystery to me, Smith had decided that we must assume false names whilst under the roof of the gables, and— "'Now, Pierce,' he said, "'a whisky and soda before we look around?' The proposal was welcome enough, for I felt strangely dispirited, and, to tell the truth in my strange disguise, not a little ridiculous. All my nerves, no doubt, were highly strung, but my sense of hearing unusually acute, for I went in momentary expectation of some uncanny happening. I had not long to wait. As I raised the glass to my lips and glanced across the table at my friend, I heard the first faint sound heralding the coming of the bells. It did not seem to proceed from anywhere within the library, but from some distant room far away overhead. A musical sound it was, but breaking in upon the silence of that ill-omened house, its music was the music of terror. In a faint and very sweet cascade it rippled, a ringing as of tiny silver bells. I set down my glass upon the table, and, rising slowly from the chair in which I had been seated, stared fixedly at my companion, who was staring with equal fixity at me. I could see that I had not been deluded. Nayland Smith had heard the ringing, too. "'The ghosts waste no time,' he said softly. "'This is not new to me. I spent an hour here last night, and heard the same sound.' I glanced hastily around the room. It was furnished as a library, and contained a considerable collection of works, principally novels. I was unable to judge of the outlook, for the two lofty windows were draped with heavy purple curtains that were drawn close. A silk-shaded lamp swung from the centre of the ceiling, and immediately over the table by which I stood. There was much shadow about the room, and now I glanced apprehensively about me, but especially toward the open door. In that breathless suspense of listening we stood a while, then— "'There it is again,' whispered Smith, tensely. The ringing of bells was repeated, and seemingly much nearer to us. In fact, it appeared to come from somewhere above, up near the ceiling of the room in which we stood. Simultaneously we looked up, then Smith laughed shortly. "'Instinctive, I suppose,' he snapped. "'But what do we expect to see in the air?' The musical sound now grew in volume. The first tiny peal seemed to be reinforced by others, and by others again, until the air around us was filled with the peelings of those invisible bell-ringers. Although, as I have said, the sound was rather musical than horrible, it was, on the other hand, so utterly unaccountable as to touch the supreme heights of the uncanny. 
I could not doubt that our presence had attracted these unseen ringers to the room in which we stood, and I knew quite well that I was growing pale. This was the room in which at least one unhappy occupant of the gables had died of fear. I recognized the fact that if this mere overture were going to affect my nerves to such an extent, I could not hope to survive the ordeal of the night. A great effort was called for. I emptied my glass at a gulp and stared across the table at Nayland Smith with a sort of defiance. He was standing very upright and motionless, but his eyes were turning right and left, searching every visible corner of the big room. "'Good,' he said in a very loud voice. "'The terrorizing power of the unknown is boundless, but we must not get in the grip of panic, or we could not hope to remain in this house ten minutes.' I nodded without speaking. Then Smith, to my amazement, suddenly began to speak in a loud voice, a marked contrast to that almost a whisper in which he'd spoken formerly. "'My dear Pierce,' he cried, "'do you hear the ringing of bells?' Clearly the latter words were spoken for the benefit of the unseen intelligence controlling these manifestations, and although I regarded such finesse as somewhat wasted, I followed my friend's lead and replied in a voice as loud as his own, "'Distinctly, Professor!' Silence followed my words, a silence in which both stood watchful and listening. Then, very faintly, I seemed to detect the silvern ringing receding away through distant rooms. Finally it became inaudible, and in the stillness of the gables I could distinctly hear my companion breathing. For fully ten minutes we two remained thus, each momentarily expecting a repetition of the ringing, or the coming of some new and more sinister manifestation. But we heard nothing, and saw nothing. "'Hand me that grip, and don't stir till I come back,' hissed Smith in my ear. He turned and walked out of the library, his boots creaking very loudly in that awe-inspiring silence. Standing beside the table, I watched the open door for his return, crushing down a dread that another form than his might suddenly appear there. I could hear him moving from room to room, and presently, as I waited in hushed, tense watchfulness, he came in, depositing the grip upon the table. His eyes were gleaming feverishly. "'The house is haunted, Pierce,' he cried, "'but no ghost ever frightened me. Come, I will show you your room.' End of chapter 25 Recording by Elaine Tweddle, Stirling, Ontario